Good morning, and thank you for the very kind introduction, Dr. Young. It's great to be here with you this morning at Grace Evan. And how nice it was to hear the choir, not just this morning, but last night our family was here for the concert. And let me just say first to Roger McMarron, that was incredible. Some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard in my life, you guys. Thank you very, very much. I was talking to my wife last night, and I said, if the Kiev Symphony and the Kiev Choir can sound this beautiful, just imagine what the music's going to be like when we get to heaven. I can't wait. But thank you very much, and let me say thank you to Dr. Young for the invitation, not just to come and speak here, but I wanted to say thank you to him for his enthusiasm for missions. I want to tell you this morning how fortunate you are as a church to have a pastor who's so passionate about God's kingdom, not just here in Memphis and in the U.S., but around the world. And I'll tell you, I'll be honest, if every pastor in America had the passion for missions that your pastor does and your church does, the Great Commission would have been completed a long time ago. But it's a great privilege to be here with you this morning. As Dr. Young said, my wife Laura and I have been missionaries in Malawi for the past 17 years. And Malawi is a small country down in East Africa, right below Kenya, Tanzania. There's Malawi. And it has been in the news recently. Maybe some of you heard that Madonna was in Malawi adopting a baby. And it's easy to criticize these Hollywood people. But I think it's a good thing. It has finally put Malawi on the map. Um, Madonna, Madonna adopting a baby there. Uh, because a lot of people, I think, for the last 17 years have thought that my wife and I were maybe missionaries in Maui instead of Malawi. But people ask, what are some of the challenges of raising a family in Africa? As Dr. Young said, we have five children. And one of the most difficult things is traveling with that many kids, a family of seven, back and forth to to the United States. It's an 18-hour flight just from Atlanta to Johannesburg and then another two hours on up to Malawi. And, And especially if you have to fly on British Airways. I don't think there's any other airline in the history of commercial aviation that has lost more luggage than British Airways. We flew to Uganda. This was about two years ago with our family. We had 20 pieces of luggage. We're moving there to live for a year. British Airways managed to lose all 20 pieces of luggage. I don't even know how that's possible. When we came back to the States a year later, they lost another six pieces of luggage. It got so bad that the last time I flew on British Airways, I went up to the counter. I was in Atlanta, and I'm flying to Malawi. And I told the lady, I said, at British Airways, I said, I have three pieces of luggage, but can you do me a favor? I'm flying to Malawi, but can you please send one piece to Cape Town, one piece to Cairo, and one piece to Ouagadougou? And the lady said, what? She said, you're flying to Malawi, but you want one piece to go to Cape Town, one to go to Cairo, and one to Ouagadougou? She said, I'm sorry, but we can't do that. And I said, well, why not? You did it the last time I flew on British Airways. Well, this morning, Dr. Young asked me to tell the story of how my wife and I were called to be missionaries in Africa. But I also wanted to share with you how we have learned and how you can learn as well to trust God. Because the only way that your faith can be developed... The only way that your faith can grow is when you're able to step out from where you're comfortable and put your faith and your trust in God. 
Because we serve a God that not only wants to be trusted, but if we're going to be called His children, He demands that we put our faith and our trust in Him. This morning I wanted to read to you a passage out of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's out of Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. And I just wanted to read one verse. But in this passage, Jesus is telling the people that He's speaking to, He's talking about all the things that He's created. He said, I've created the flowers and the trees. I've created the whole world. And he said, I provide for them. I didn't just create them, but I take care of them. And he says, don't you think I can do the same thing for you? He said, but what you have to do is not worry about those things, but put your faith and your trust in me. Let's read this verse together. Seek you first his kingdom. Seek you first his righteousness. And then all of these other things will be added unto you. Well, my testimony and my story of how my wife and I ended up in Africa really begins in a small town in Mississippi called Picayune. It's between Gulfport and and New Orleans. It's a small town. And back in the late 1960s, my father was pastoring a small Presbyterian church there in Picayune. And that church had never had a missions conference. So in 1968, my father organized their first missions conference and invited an African evangelist named Augustus Marwia to come and speak. And Gus Marway was running a small pastor's training school in the country of Liberia. And every night Gus spoke for four or five nights during that conference. And each night while he was speaking, he was challenging the people there in that little town of Picayune for somebody to go back to Liberia to work with him to teach at his pastor's training school. And after he spoke, my father would get up and follow up Gus and say, well, who is going to go back and work with Gus Marway in Liberia? And he did that for two or three nights. And finally, one night when they got home, my mother pulled my father aside, sat him down, and she said, Jack, how can we ask other people to do what we're not willing to do ourselves? And so they knelt down and prayed and said, Lord, if you can use us in Liberia, We are willing. And the next morning, they talked to Gus Marway. And two years later, 1970, my parents moved to Liberia to work with Gus. And my parents had seven children at the time. They took the four youngest of us, my twin brother and I, and my two sisters. And we were on Gus's small mission station. People imagine that all of Africa is like a Tarzan movie, that there's jungle everywhere. It's not really like that. A lot of Africa is desert. A lot of it is dry savanna, but the real tropical rainforest is right there in Liberia. And that's where our mission was, the the, the big umbrella African trees. And and there was no road going to the mission station. Gus had just cut out an airstrip, and so we had to fly in on this little Cessna 180. And we were so far out in the jungle, they had built us a house out of bamboo matting up on stilts for us to live in. But we were so far removed from any other mission work. I think the closest missionaries were 50 or 60 miles from where we were. That whenever we left that mission station, most of the young kids from maybe age 14 years old on down had never seen an American before. They had never seen a white face. And so on Sunday mornings, my father and our family, we would walk down trails and through the bush to different villages for my father to preach. And many times we could hear the kids, they had heard that the Mazungus were coming. And so they would hide in the bush along the trail so they could get a glimpse of these people coming to their village. And we couldn't see them, but as we got close to the village, we could hear the kids start running and screaming. 
and they're yelling, Yomplu, Yomplu, Yomplu. That means ghost or spirit as we would come into their village. Now, an interesting thing about these people that we worked with, the Sapo tribe, they, they were very steeped in animism, very deep into witchcraft, many superstitions. One thing they believed is that it was a very bad thing for a woman to have more than one child, for a woman to have twins. And they didn't think that my twin brother and I were bad, but but they had never seen twins before because they had a habit. If a woman ever had two babies, they would take the smaller of the two and they would put it on a big termite hill and let the termites eat it. They thought only dogs and cats had more than one child. And so they were fascinated when we would come into a village, not only because we were looked alike and they hadn't seen two people, but because my mother dressed us exactly the same. But, but they, it started to change the culture and the people around there because they saw that it wasn't a, a, a terribly bad thing, that my mother had twins. Pretty soon other people in villages around us started letting their twins live. And pretty soon there were twin babies being named after my twin brother and I, two or three sets of twins called Paul and Palmer. And even my parents had a set of twins named Jack and Nell named after them. But one thing our friends used to tell us when we were growing up on the mission is, you twins are very fortunate because one important thing about twins is you can't get bit by a snake. And that was important in the, in the tropics because in Liberia they had very poisonous snakes. They had the king cobra, they had the black mamba, they had the gaboon viper, they had a, a green mamba that they, the Africans called the two-step mamba. Because when you get bit by this one, you have two steps before you die. And so our, our friends on the mission used to tell us, you guys are fortunate. You can't get bit by a snake because you're a twin. And so whenever we would go out through the bush, they would say, Paul or Palmer, you guys come get out in front. And if there's a snake on the path, you can step on it first and, and it can't bite you. But it was while we were living down in the bush that my father, and where he was training these pastors in, in these rural villages, that he had the vision for a real Bible college there for Africa. A college that would train Christian leaders, a college above and beyond what he was able to work with, with these pastors in the bush and also the thousands of kids leaving high school every year with nowhere to go. There's only one university in the whole country of Liberia. And so any Christian church or denomination that wanted a leader would have to send them overseas for training. It was very expensive. The education they were getting really wasn't relevant to what they were doing back in Africa. And many of these leaders would come to, to the United States and many times have difficulty getting back to Africa. And so my father's vision was to put in a real four-year Bible college there in Liberia. And I think many times we take for granted the number of great Christian colleges that we have here in the U.S., like Covenant College or Bellhaven College, where we are down in Jackson. But what, what, uh, what people don't know is that when my father built that first college in Liberia and then later in Malawi and then in Uganda, these were the first and still the only evangelical four-year Bible college in each of these countries. And a, a tremendous demand by the people for this kind of education. Africans value higher education every year. My wife is the dean of admissions at our college, and every year we get between 700, sometimes over 1,000 applications a year for just 50 spots that we have at our Christian college. But I think many people assume that because I grew up in Africa that I always wanted to go back there to be a missionary. But it wasn't like that. When I graduated from high school overseas, I couldn't wait to come to the United States. I felt like I had been missing out 
on a lot of things. And, and I went to a Christian college out on the West Coast called Biola. It was Bible Institute of Los Angeles, used to be. And, and in my third year, when I was a junior, my, my wife came up from San Diego. She was a freshman, beautiful girl, cheerleader. Uh, used to spend all of her afternoons out on the beach. And, and uh, when she was coming to Biola, Biola at that time had a reputation, a lot like Wheaton does, of sending out a lot of missionaries. And so when her cheerleader friends at her high school in San Diego heard that she was going up to Biola, they said, Laura, don't go to Biola. You'll end up marrying a missionary and going to Africa. And she said, that will never happen. But right after I graduated, we got married, and I couldn't wait to buy a lot of the things that I felt like I had been missing out on my whole life. Within two months after we were married, I bought both of us brand new cars. I bought myself a Peugeot 505 Turbo with leather interior and a sunroof. I bought my wife a, a Wolfsburg Volkswagen Cabriolet convertible. It's called a white-on-white special edition. And, and what I found very early on, that is very easy here in America not to just be consumed with these things that you're buying, but to let them control you as you try to pay off the debt for these things that you're accumulating. And pretty soon your life becomes glutted with these things. And people ask me when we come back from Africa, we were gone four years this last time. They say, well, what do you notice that's different? And I say, well, Americans have a lot of stuff. It's nice stuff. But they have a lot of it. And that's what my wife were doing. This was in the late 1980s. And I was taking some classes in the evening at Talbot Seminary. And, and one of my classes, I was doing a paper out of Luke 19. And, and I was writing a paper on the nobleman that called in his three servants. And, and he gave each of them a gift. He, he gave each of them five minas or five pieces of silver. And he gave them instructions. He said, while I'm gone, he said, do business with this. Multiply what I have given you. And while I was reading that, I was convicted that if there's anything God had given me, it was an understanding of the African people. The, these were people that I understood their culture. I spoke their language. I had a heart for them. These were my people. And I was convicted as I read through that. You hear about the last servant that said to the nobleman, well, I took what you gave me, and I wrapped it in a handkerchief, and I dug a hole in the ground, and I buried it. And, and that's who I was identifying myself with. And what did the master say? He said, take that servant and throw him into outer darkness. And so it was about that time, 1989, I wrote my father. He was starting the second African Bible college in a country called Malawi. I grew up in Africa. I never heard of that country. But I said, Dad, I said, I don't want to be a missionary the rest of my life. I said, but I'm willing to come out for two years and help you build that college. And so my wife and I went over there. And two years now has turned into 17 years. But the question is, and the question that all of us has to ask each one of ourselves, is what has God equipped you for? Just as he has equipped me to serve in Africa, what special gift has he given you? What is God calling you to do? What has he prepared you in a special way for? We have a missionary that's worked with us for seven or eight years in Malawi. His name is Jay Stoms. Jay Stoms went to Jim Kennedy's seminary down in, in, in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It's called Knox Seminary. He graduated from there a few years ago. But Jay Stoms didn't go into the ministry. Jay Stoms didn't go on the mission field. Instead, Jay Stoms went back to his hometown near Seattle, Washington and started building homes. 
A few years later, he was back visiting Florida. He went to Jim Kennedy's church on Sunday morning, and and he stood at the door after the service and thought he would shake Dr. Kennedy's hand. And so he was there waiting, and Dr. Kennedy came out, and Jay Stoms held out his hand. He said, Dr. Kennedy, I'm one of your graduates from Knox Seminary. Dr. Kennedy said, well, that's great, Jay. He said, what are you doing now? And Jay said, well, I'm, I'm building homes up in Seattle. Dr. Kennedy didn't even hesitate. He said, Jay, is that what we trained you to do? Well, Jay Stoms was convicted. He's now been in Malawi with us for the past six years. But there are many people like Jay Stoms. They are somewhat willing to go, but they are also prepared to stay. And many people like to think of all the excuses of why God can't use him. I'm not qualified. I can't speak. I, I'm too young for God to use me. Well, well, these excuses have already been used. Moses said that. I can't speak. Jeremiah said, well, I'm too young. What people don't realize is that God equips you for whatever he's calling you to do. If you're willing, God is able. And you have to learn to trust God because what people don't realize is that it's not until you, you fully put your trust in God that you can fully experience him. People say, well, I want to feel what it's like to experience God. Well, that doesn't happen until you fully put your faith and trust on him. And as Dr. Young said earlier when he was introducing me, people are afraid of the sacrifices that they'll have to make. And there will be sacrifices. When we live over in Africa and and I'm raising two teenage daughters, the security is a very real threat. We lived in Uganda for a year and and my, my bedroom was here. My bed was here four feet away. On the other side of the wall was a security guard with a shotgun that he filled with shells every night. Security is a real issue in Africa. Health for your family and children is a real issue. That on the cover of the newspaper in Jackson, Mississippi last week was a big picture of a mosquito uh, biting into a guy's arm. And it said, West Nile virus threat, three people dead. Well, in, in Malawi every year, uh, not in Malawi, but in Africa as a whole, over a million people a year die just of malaria. And so there will be sacrifices. There will be hardships. But Paul promises that. In Acts 20, Paul says that every town he goes to, the Holy Spirit tells him, he says, affliction and imprisonment await me. This was standard procedure for Paul. He said, every town I go in, imprisonment and affliction await me. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about the hardships that he's been through. Five times he was whipped. Three times he was beaten with a rod. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. But the thing we have to remember is that we need to trust God and he will see you through those difficult times. If God has brought a hardship your way because you're stepping out in faith for him, it's for a reason. He wants your faith to grow. He wants you to trust on him, trust in him. And because of that, you will be a stronger Christian. Your faith will be strengthened because of that experience. And what we think of as sacrifice is really no sacrifice at all. I used to think that growing up in Africa, that I had given up so much to be a kid growing up in the middle of the bush. I didn't realize until my wife and I started serving in Africa that the people who are making the real sacrifices are the ones that are missing out on watching God work in amazing ways. In Africa, 16,000 people a day become Christians. Wow, who would want to miss out on that? Who would want to miss out on watching God use their life to do things they thought were never possible? Who would want to miss out on all the blessings that God has promised 
when you step out in faith. And God's Word is full of these promises of blessings when you trust Him completely. If you go to Matthew 19, there's a great story. Let me tell quickly about Peter. Uh, Peter and the disciples are walking with Jesus. And, and, and Peter says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, he says, we have left everything to follow you. What are we going to get in return? And Jesus says, Peter, don't you know that everyone who's left their mother and their father for my name's sake will receive a hundred times homes and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. And this is something my wife and I have seen again and again as we serve on the mission field. And it's only when you do that, it's only when you step out in faith and you trust him completely. God wants us to trust him with our children. God wants us to trust him with our possessions, with our profession, with our lives. God doesn't want any of those things to come between him and you. It's a violation of the first commandment. A lot of people don't realize that. When you put those things first before God, you violated the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And that's why he says in Matthew 6:33, the verse we read earlier, if you put me first, my kingdom, my work, my calling, all those other things, your children, your possessions, your profession, I will take care of them. You don't have to worry. And when you do that, when you trust him com- completely, then God can use you in amazing ways. Let me close by reading a quote by John Piper. It's in a book that he's written called Don't Waste your life. And John Piper writes, you are in one of two groups. Either you are a Christian or God is now calling you to be one. And God is standing there at the door knocking. And a lot of people think they hear God's call and they wonder, what can I do to be saved? What good thing should I do? And the Bible says, it's nothing that you do. It's by faith alone. Trust in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of you have gone astray. You can't save yourself. Instead, you need to put your trust on my son, Jesus Christ. All of your iniquities, lay them on him, totally trust in God, not in yourself. Anything that you've done to get yourself into heaven, but trust God alone. If you are a Christian, John Piper says, you are not your own person. Christ has bought you at the price of his own death. You now belong doubly to God. He made you. And he bought you. That means that your life is not your own. It is God's. Therefore, you are to glorify God with your life. God made you for this. He bought you for this. This is the meaning of your life. It will be hard and the risk will be high, but your joy will be full. You were made to live a God-exalting life. Don't waste it. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Dear Lord, we do want to thank you that you are standing at the door knocking, that you have called us, and that we can be called your children. What a tremendous honor and privilege that is. But also a great responsibility to take your gospel to the whole world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.